We finished up 1 Peter 4 last time, and that takes us, of course, to 1 Peter 5, which is fairly short. It'll go a couple places, but theoretically we shouldn't have lots of bunny trails, but we might, you never know, to sort of get everybody on the same sheet of music. Peter is writing to Hebrews, and he's writing to Hebrews in exile, and he is writing to Messianic Hebrews in exile, and he's telling them that since they are a minority among Gentiles, they need to behave themselves, otherwise anti-Semitism will raise its ugly head, and anti-Christianity will raise its ugly head, and you'll be persecuted. But understand that if you are persecuted for Christ's sake, then you will receive a blessing for having suffered with him. However, if you are persecuted because you deserve to be persecuted, like you're cheating people or doing something like that, then we got no help for you. So whatever you do, make sure that the persecution that you do endure is for the fact that you're a Christian and not for something that you have done wrong. So let me pick it up at 4.12 and we'll sort of swoop through the end of 4 and then go into 5. Since 4 starts with a so or a therefore, uh, it's probably good to have context of what it's there for. So 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory, and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I misled you. I'm actually going to pause here a minute before I go on to chapter 5. This idea of judgment beginning at the house of God, your scriptural reference for that is Leviticus 10. As the tabernacle is being set into motion, which is to say when the Spirit of God, the Shekinah, shows up in the place, Nadab and Avihu are overcome with emotion. The rabbis speculate they may also have been overcome with a little bit of wine, having gotten into the spirit of the celebration. But in any case, they go charging into the tabernacle with incense that had not been commanded. And of course, you all know the story. Fire came out from the altar and killed them both. And God says to Moses that I will be sanctified by those who are nearest to me. So the idea that when God gets ready to act in the world, that will happen first with the household of God, goes all the way back to the Torah. So this wouldn't be any surprise to Hebrews, who are the audience for this letter. 
So when he says something like that, just like I did, somebody would have gone back to Leviticus and said, aha, he's referring there to Nadab and Avihu as the example. So now let's pick it up at verse 17 and go on to chapter 5. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. So what he's talking about then is obviously elders. And one of the things that Yeshua does before he leaves, and he does it in a couple of places, he does it in Matthew 24 and he does it in Luke 12. We'll read the Luke passage because it's longer. We're going to be down in verse 41. So we're in Luke 12, 41, where Yeshua is giving instructions to his disciples about what they're supposed to be doing until he comes back. And of course, this is pre-crucifixion, so it isn't necessarily entirely comprehensible to them, but it's clear enough that they'll figure it out. 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, that's pretty starchy. Let me go ahead and read to the end of the paragraph, and let's come back for a second. So verse 47. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. All right, so we've got three categories of servant here. Category number one is the manager who has been put over the household. And if that guy goes astray, it's pretty darn starchy. It says he'll be cut in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. That's, as I say, pretty, pretty draconian. Then you have class two. is a servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will who receive a severe beating. So somebody below the master who is still a servant 
and knows what he's supposed to be doing but doesn't. He will be flogged. And then finally you have a third class of servant still below the manager and that's the one who is ignorant and does something that's deserving of a beating. He will also receive a beating but it won't be nearly as severe as the beating that is given to the one who knew what he was supposed to do and didn't do it. Now three categories there obviously. I am suggesting to you that when Peter is talking to elders he is probably talking to category one. That's a guess. I mean, it doesn't say that. And by the way, you notice in Luke, Peter's the guy that asked the question. So when Peter talks about this, he talks about it from a position of having been there when Yeshua gave his disciples the instructions. So it is not, in fact, the case that Peter didn't hear it properly because he was right there. So class number one is one who is put in a managerial position over the household, which as I say, I'm suggesting would certainly qualify as elders and so forth. Category number two is those who knew what was supposed to happen. And I'm going to talk about category two and category three as people who know Torah and people who don't. I'm suggesting that might be a metaphor. So category two is people who know Torah, they are servants of God, yet they don't do what's expected of them. And what he says is they will get flogged. Notice they don't get cut in pieces, which is a comfort, but they do get flogged. And then category three are what the Jews would call Gentiles who are responsible, for example, for the Noahide laws in their estimation. That's rabbinic, that's not biblical. And those people don't know Torah, so they may run afoul of Torah unintentionally. And the master will get their attention, but not nearly as grumpy about it as he is with somebody who knows what he's supposed to do. The comment was that in verse 43, Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So the comment was, as we go down later on, nobody knows the day or the hour. And that's certainly clear from the passage that the master is coming back at a time when the wicked servants do not know. And Yeshua himself says, nobody knows the day or the hour, but you can recognize the seasons. That's true too, hence the basis of your comment. I will suggest, however, that what's being said here is the faithful servant is doing what needs to be done and doesn't worry about the season. So he's not worried about the master coming home because he's doing what he's supposed to do. So he isn't out there looking around to see if the red sky in the morning or any of that kind of stuff. And so he's not taken by surprise because when the master shows up, it's, oh, okay, glad to see you, boss. And Everything continues as it was before because it was going properly before the master returned. So what I'm suggesting to you is that is a place that you might turn when you're reading chapter 5 and verse 1, 
where it says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That's very much in the same spirit of the Luke 12 passage where Peter is exhorting those who are in charge of the various small sub-flocks to make sure you're faithful. And the other thing that he says is, I am a fellow elder like you, so I am charged with the same responsibilities as you are. And the other thing he says is, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which is to say, he was with the Messiah, he heard the Messiah speak, He saw the crucifixion, he saw the risen Messiah, and so he is speaking with authority because he was an eyewitness to all of those events. And as I say, as we can see in the Luke passage, he definitely was there when Yeshua talked about the three or four categories of servant. Category one is a good manager, two is one that goes off the rails, then three is one who's not a manager but knows better, And then four is one who doesn't know better. But all are servants of God. So we are all the way down to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfailing crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The first thing he's saying is, those of you who are in managerial positions over the flock, you will receive a crown when he returns. Those of you who are not in managerial positions, which I'm going to suggest back in the Luke passage, refers to the servants who knew what they were supposed to do. The category two folks, because these are all, remember, Hebrews. So what he's saying to the category two folks is you also need to mind your P's and Q's and be humble in your service because the master will be looking at you as well when he returns. So verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's back up a second now. So this idea of being sober-minded and watchful, again, I am suggesting that is referring to the servants who are not managers but are just ordinary servants and who are expected to know what's going on. But he also says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So where should that take you? Now, I went back to Genesis, specifically Genesis 4. 
We'll go to Job next, but that's a good reference. I did not think of that one. So if you go to Genesis 4, we have the unfortunate incident of Cain and Abel. Before that, Abel brings a sacrifice and Cain brings a sacrifice and God respects the sacrifice of Abel and rejects the sacrifice of Cain. Cain, of course, is the older. He's the firstborn. As you all know, the name Abel is Hevel, which is used in Ecclesiastes to mean vanity. It literally means insubstantial, a puff of air. So in the story, Cain is sort of the Messiah that they are expecting because they've been thrown out of the garden. So all the hope is on the firstborn and they don't expect much out of the secondborn. Hence the name, evil. And when his sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is rejected, Cain is more than a little chapped. So pick it up at four or five. But for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So, what Peter is saying, the devil is like a roaring lion, he, at least in my estimation, is channeling Genesis 4. And we'll go to Job in just a minute, because I say, I think that's a good reference too. But the idea here in Genesis 4 is Cain has got his nose out of joint. God says, if you do right, you can certainly recover favor. In other words, do what pleases me, and everything will be fine. However, understand that sin, and what the Jews would call that is the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is out there, and it's seeking to trip you up. This is sin, not the personification of sin, which is the devil in Peter. In Peter and Job, sin is personified in the devil. In other words, you have a person, a being, who is your adversary. It isn't entirely clear that that's what's being said in Genesis. What very well may be meant in Genesis is everybody has a Yetzer Tov and a Yetzer Hara, an evil inclination and a good inclination. And Paul calls it the spirit and the flesh. New Testament speak is the spirit and the flesh. Hebrew speak, Jewish speech is Yetzer Tov and Yetzer Hara. It's the same concept in both cases. And what God, I think, is saying in Genesis 4 is, yeah, you have got this evil inclination, which is a consequence. This is parentheses, not stated by God, thought by me. It's a consequence of the fact that your parents have made you mortal. So you have this inclination. And what it's going to try and do is it's going to try and pull you to the ground and away from God. But you can rule over it. In other words, this is something that you are able to conquer. Peter says something similar, but in a way different. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it is my belief that all the devil can do to you is make suggestions. Just as with Eve, the devil shows up in the form of a snake and starts making suggestions. And the woman starts listening to those suggestions and she acts on those suggestions and that's what gets her in trouble. So the idea here of the devil is looking to seek someone to devour. The only way he can get you to be devoured is if he talks to your evil inclination and you listen to him and you listen to it. In that case, you're going to wind up much like Cain did. The comment was that there's so much deceit going on in the world right now, and it has always been thus, but with the internet and radio and television, it's on steroids. It's all been there all the time. I mean, it's, there's nothing new. It's just that it's sort of taken on a velocity that we haven't ever seen before. And your comment was, you may be going along minding your own business, not looking to get into any trouble, but one of these lies may start being whispered in your ear and you may listen to it. And if you listen to it and follow it, then you will wind up in the ditch, just like Cain did. Everybody has got garbage that flows through their heads, constantly. And that's what Paul is saying when he says, take every thought captive. So you're not responsible for the garbage that flows through your head. What you are responsible for is the garbage you trap look at, ooh, I kind of like that piece of garbage, looks really tasty, and you then act on it. At that point, you've fallen into sin. There is some question, and I don't know the answer to this, whether you are self-generating garbage, which is entirely possible, or whether the garbage is being whispered in your ear spiritually. Could be either one, or it could be both. But both Moses in Genesis and Peter, and of course Paul, where he uses the metaphor of the spirit and the flesh, but it's all the same thing. There's sort of a duality about us, and we have this component in us that is attracted to things that are earthly, and we have a component in us that is attracted to things that are holy. And very easy for us to go along and say, squirrel, and you're off in some direction that you hadn't really planned to be in because of some junk that's just gone through your head. All right, Job. Yeah, we're Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So the idea that Satan is walking to and fro on the earth would certainly going back to first peter where it says your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion that would certainly also be a good reference to that passage comment was that a of course the audience for this letter are hebrews who peter assumes no scripture so a lot of what we have just gone through, their folks, their teachers, their rabbis, whatever, would also have been able to come up with. P. 
Peter assumes a knowledge of the scriptures. The other comment was, we're, we're down in verse 9, resist him, the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering have been experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Again, could be referring to Job, who, although he was righteous, suffered tremendously. Wouldn't argue with that at all. Having said that, not sure that's what's being said here. Might be. I mean, it's a a good reference. I'm not really arguing. But the other part that he's talked about earlier is not necessarily satanic oppression, but oppression from their Gentile neighbors or from their rabbinic neighbors, where they were formerly in the synagogue, and Yeshua himself says, they're going to throw you out of the synagogue and, and give you all kinds of trouble. And of course, we know from history that both Jews and Christians have been heavily persecuted by pagans. So the, the only hesitation I'm having with your Job reference here is the suffering that he has been talking about heretofore doesn't seem to have been caused directly by Satan so much as it is caused by their neighbors. And I see the resisting Satan as an exhortation as we saw previously, which is to say, make sure that if you're persecuted, you are not persecuted for doing wrong. So if you give in to Satan, you'll open yourself to being persecuted for doing wrong as opposed to being persecuted simply because you follow Christ. So I see the exhortation to resist Satan as don't fall into the trap of being punished because you deserve it. But life's going to be tough either way. Exactly so. So that brings us to the end of the letter. So let's pick it up in verse 12 and finish it off. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So ends the letter. One of the things that I very much like about this is remember again, he's speaking to believers who know scripture. And what he's doing is I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what he's doing is writing to encourage them. This is not a gospel instruction letter where he's trying to gain converts. This is a letter by way of encouragement and reminder. And one of the things that we see over and over again in Scripture, especially like, for example, Deuteronomy, where we are on Shabbat, is Moses says over and over again, talk about this, remind each other, teach your children. Don't ever just sort of assume that you know it all and quit studying, quit talking about it, any of those kinds of things. Talk about it continually. So Peter, in this case, is doing the same thing, where he's writing him a letter, not necessarily telling them anything they don't know, but it's simply by way of exhortation and reminder, which we all need from time to time, which is why everybody in here, I'm sure, has read First Peter many times, but you're all sitting in here going over it again by way of reminder and exhortation.